Hi, church. Isn't that a new song great? You like that one? I like it. It's a keeper if I get a vote. I don't think I get a vote, but it's a keeper. Uh, thank you so much for being here. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited and so blessed to be here with you today. Uh, blessings to you if you're here from out of town visiting family. If you're with us uh, at one of our local sites or our campuses, thank you so much for joining us. God is doing some amazing things at Hope. And um, I really love the last uh, nine weeks, including this week, for our sermon series uh, on the Ten Commandments. Uh, God is really moving in a lot of people's lives, and we can kind of feel it. We can kind of see the way that God is working in your life. And so it's a really big blessing for me to get to be a part of it as we wrap it all up. Uh, as we come into the end of our sermon series, we're talking about the last two or the last, depending on how you count the commandments, uh, commandment about coveting. Okay? So when it comes to coveting, you shouldn't do it. Okay? I know that's a surprise to you. Uh, but we're going to talk about coveting and what that means uh, because it's kind of not a word we use very much these days. Uh, but uh, before we get into that, I just want to talk about the law. Because in the last nine weeks, you've heard, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it's kind of hard. And we have this scripture from Romans 7 that has some confusing things in it. It's confusing for me. I don't, maybe you get it, and maybe you should tell me what it means. Because I think it's confusing. If you look at this verse right here, it says, Once it was alive apart from the law... Well, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, you could read that, and you could go, whoa, does that mean the commandment failed to do its job? I don't think that's what it means. That's not what Paul's saying. It means we misunderstand what the commandment does. The commandment, the, the law is here to serve a purpose. And I want you to understand what the law does in a different way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, one of the reasons why I'm excited, not just because we're uh, in this great sermon series, not just because it's the first week of Advent and we're talking about hope uh, and how we can have hope in Christ, but because I also have a super convoluted, overly complicated sermon illustration that has a 50-50 chance of failing, okay? So um, you, I'm glad you came to church. You had a good choice. Um, there's this thing that couples do sometimes, you know, in weddings uh, in the 70s. We think it was older than this, but it's not. People started doing uh, unity candles, right? And now for weddings, sometimes people will do sand. Anybody do sand, right? You, what we do is you take a couple colors of sand, and the groom uh, puts some of his sand, and uh, then the bride pours some of her sand, and I, if you want to think that there's some significance to the colors, they're not, okay? Um, so the groom will pour some of his, and then the bride will pour some, and then the groom will, and then the bride will yell at the groom, like, you're doing it wrong, and then he'll, like, pour some on the table. Um, and it's great, because they get to have their first fight in public in front of other people. And just so nobody's mad, we'll pour some black in there, too, okay? Um, so then you got, you know, all these different colors of sand, and it makes this beautiful cool thing, right? It's, it's neat looking. And it shows us something about the law in addition to just being kind of cool looking. Because what it is, is order. And if you can make order out of sand, 
That's impressive because sand is inherently chaotic, isn't it? Like, uh, I always think about those couples that decided to have this, and then they think, well, I'll just put that on the mantle after we get married. And so this isn't going to stay this way if you move it at all. So in order to put it on the mantle, the husband's got to sit there in the car seat on the way home like this. You know, and then it's got to sit on the mantle while the cat's going like this. You know, because you know how cats are. And then if you get kids, it's totally, uh, you know, it's, it's over. Or what happens if you move? Then you got to like, again, you got to put it, in, hold it in the car like this. But I think about the law like this. The beauty that this has is because all the pieces of sand are in the right place. Think about this jar as your life. And think about the grains of sand as the law. Right? The law brings beauty to life. The law brings purpose to life. The law brings order to life. But if you're like me, you get sick of it. And you can't leave well enough alone. If you're like me, there's sin in your life. And now it doesn't quite look the way that it's supposed to. Right? And then I try to fix it. And it gets worse. And then it gets worse and worse. Now what happened to the law and order? This is what Paul's talking about. The commandment brought beauty to my life. The law brings joy and hope and order and peace. Except for sin. Now those laws, each grain of sand representing a law of God that we're supposed to follow, they're still telling me what I should do. But now they're reminding me the way that I haven't done it. Each grain of sand is a testament to the ways I've failed to follow the law that God has for me. And ultimately, the law that was intended to bring life brings death. And so the Bible says we're like dust. And we're poured out. We're empty. We're dead. We're dead in our sin. And if you feel this way today, I want you, I want you to know that I see you. You're not alone. So, just so you know it, turn to your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. Okay? All right. Well, some of you are like way too into that. Okay? You were like, all right, I've been waiting to tell you this for a long time. Some of you were like, oh, no, they see me. I thought I flew in under the radar. You're at home here. And when we're confronted with the law of God, we feel this way. We feel the pressure. We feel an awareness of the ways that we've fallen short. And I want you to hear this. In life, just like in the Bible, the things that feel like pressure, that feels like persecution, right? That's preparation. Preparation in life and in the Bible often looks and feels like pressure, often looks and feels like persecution. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We are sinners. And now we understand what the law does. The, the purpose of the law from the beginning was to put us to death. 
Because the law is God preparing us for something better. Now I can talk about coveting. When you think about coveting, I want you uh, to think about Bluey. Anybody like Bluey in here? Anybody with little kids likes Bluey, right? Because you got little kids. Here's, a, here's finally a good cartoon. There's so many bad cartoons. This is a show that my wife and I will watch when the kids are in bed. It's awesome. Uh, but they uh, encapsulate coveting in this clip better than I can. So let's take a look at this. Hey, Bandit! Check it out! New pizza oven! Pretty sweet, eh? I just got it from Hammer Barn. Ooh. We're going to Hammer Barn. Yeah, Hammer Barn! Gee, his lawn's looking great. This episode of Bluey is called Hammer Barn. Will the pizza taste better from the pizza oven? Yep. Nope. Dad, Bluey got more sauce than me. No, she didn't. Hey, mate, where are your pizza ovens? All 300 left at the fake grass. If you hit a flamingo, you've gone too far. Tommy! I'm going to all 300. OK, we'll head to the garden centre. Come on, kids. Uh, oh, bingo! These can be our houses. <laughs> yeah! This is my yard and that's yours. Yeah! <laughs> Ooh! Hey, bingo, look, I've got a garden. Yeah, me too. Can't have too many of these. Ooh, you can be my husband. Hey, no fair. I want a husband too. Yes, yes, here you go. Same as Bingo. <laughs> hello, husband. Hello, my name is Hetuba. Oh, hello, Hetuba. My name's Gerald. I'm going to do some yard work. Dig, dig, dig. Dig, 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 dig. Hey, Gerald doesn't have a shovel. Mom, Bingo's husband is better than mine. Just try and be happy with what you've got, okay? I can't be happy with what I've got when what she has is better. Here. Thanks, Mum. Hello, new husband. <laughs> what a lovely veggie patch, Hecuba. Fairy lights. Ooh. Hey, why does Bingo... And more fairy lights that are just the same. Thank you. These can be our pizza ovens. Oh, look, Hecuba, a pizza flipper. Cook, cook, cook. Flip. Cook, cook, cook. Flip. Two pizza flippers, please. We don't need to. Try swapping something with Bingo. Cook, cook, cook. Bingo, will you swap some of my plants for your pizza flipper? No, thanks. Flip. What about for my husband? No, thanks. Flip. Oh, but that pizza flipper is all I want in the whole world. Okay. Thanks, Bingo. <laughs> cook, cook, cook. Flip. Go, go, go. Flip. Oh, pizza stone. <gasps> the dining table. Oh, I'll swap you back the pizza flipper for your dining table. No way. Bingo. I want to turn with it. Hey, give it to me. Let's go, Bingo. Give it to me, Bluey. <gasps> so how many BTUs has this one got? It's probably another Bluey. I'm sorry. This is what happens when you're unhappy with what you've got. Someone's husband eventually gets it. <laughs> right, husbands? 
When people aren't happy with what they got, somebody's husband eventually gets it. If that's you, I'm also the pastor of marriage and parenting, so just so you know. Um, and if you're tempted to swap out your husband for a pizza flipper, I can help. Um, not, you don't need a pizza flipper anyway. Who flips pizza? Um, I love this clip. And that's really all you need to know about coveting. So we can just bring the band back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you see what coveting does, right? I can't be happy as long as Bingo's husband is better than my husband, or Bingo's house is better than my house, or my neighbor's job is better than my job, or my, kid, my friend's kids are cuter than my kids, right? Or whatever it is. I can't be happy when theirs is better. When we live in this kind of mindset, it ruins our relationships with other people. You see the way that I got between those two sisters. Jesus tells this parable about um, some workers in a vineyard. He uses as a metaphor for God, the owner of the vineyard, who goes out into the market and finds workers that haven't been hired. And, and he goes out in the beginning of the day and he brings all the workers that he can find. And then he goes out later in the day and brings more. And he goes out at the end of the day and brings more. And he says, I'll give you a day's wage. And they're like, great. And so the workers at the beginning are ready for their day's wage. They, get it. they work the day, they get a day's wage. But then they see the workers. They've only been working a couple of hours. They ain't even broke a sweat yet. And the owner gives them a day's wage. And they're like, all right, this is going to be great. We're going to get more. And then they come to the front of the line. He gives them a day's wage. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. That's not fair. Who said anything about fair? We talk about this all the time in my house with having little kids. Who said life is fair? We focus too much on fair. Coveting goes hand in hand with complaining and comparing. You see the way those workers were comparing themselves to each other. You see the way that we compare ourselves with each other. You see that in that clip. My neighbor has a pizza oven. I need a pizza oven. Comparison steals your joy. If the reason why you're happy is because compared to other people, you're doing better, you're not really happy. Comparison steals your joy. Maybe you're with some, you see somebody else, and you're not better than them. Comparison, complaining, we worry about fairness, and we have these expectations. That has nothing to do with the holidays, right? We don't even create expectations around holidays. Right? It makes me think of Clark Griswold, right? His wife says, Sparky, you, you create expectations that no family event could ever live up to. I think it's really fascinating. After the day, we celebrate giving thanks. We have uh, a day that celebrates getting more things. Right? Not, I'm not anti-Black Friday. If you win, got deals. I like deals as much as the next guy, Okay? I hope you didn't punch somebody in the face to get a good deal, okay? But we need to focus on the main things. So I think it's really powerful that after this day of gratitude and, and after Black Friday and before Cyber Monday, we have the sermon about coveting. Because it's not about the things. And the things don't have to be things. The things could be position. The things can be... Um, 
my Christian walk. I can covet somebody else's faith. I can covet somebody else's relationships. I can covet somebody else's relationship with God. Remember that we don't need to confuse the gifts with the giver. The gift is always about the relationship with the giver. Uh, a few years ago, my daughter, who's eight, um, she, I had the great idea. This is my favorite Christmas present, either on the giving end or the receiving end of all time so far. Uh, I had the great idea. I'm going to build her a dollhouse. I build things in the garage. It's my hobby. I build guitars mostly. But I was like, I could do a dollhouse. And just like you see from my, you haven't even seen all of it yet, my convoluted sermon illustration, I always make things way more complicated than they need to be. So I built her this dollhouse, and I drew the plans, and every room has its own uh, floor uh, treatment, and there's different uh, patterns on the wallpaper in each room, and there's lights that lights up inside, and uh, it's got working doors, and all these other things. And she loved it, and it was amazing. Yes, dad win. It was great. So we're playing with it a couple weeks later. And this is the family in, in, in the house. My wife's great idea. There's four of them, just like there's four of us. And so we're playing. I said, well, what's the mommy's name? And she said, the mommy's name is Stephanie. I'm like, oh, that's my wife's name. That's really sweet. What's the daughter's name? The daughter's name is Lydia. Well, that's funny. That's your name. What's the son's name? Samo, because... Samo is my son's name, Sam. And I should have just left it at that. <laughs> but I had to ask, well, what's the dad's name? She goes, Carlos. <laughs> Real nonchalant like that. Carlos? Who's Carlos? This guy Carlos is living in the house that I built? You don't even know anybody named Carlos. Honey, do we know any Carloses? Ridiculous. Right? It's about expectation. If you want to pay attention and think about the way that you covet, pay attention to your disappointment. Pay attention to your disappointment. Coveting, you know, on the surface and and in its most simplest form is, hey, you have that, and I don't have that, and I want that. And that's, that's definitely coveting, but coveting goes deeper. Like, what's my dissatisfaction with the things that God has given me? Another story. Because I really think, as you think about complaining, you think about comparing, you think about uh, people complaining about it not being fair, you think about expectations. I think of social media. I don't know about you guys. That's where I see the most complaining and comparing. You see these great pictures of everybody else's family. You're like, wow, they got all their kids to lay on the bed with their ankles crossed the same. And everybody's smiling. Or they, they're all wearing matching jammies. Or they do all these other things, right? No offense if that's your picture. Your picture was great. I saw it on social media. It was wonderful, right? I'm not anti-social media or pictures of family. This is a picture of my family. We got to go home for Thanksgiving and visit... Our family, we have three grandparents living in their 90s. So, yeah, it's a really big deal. We want to take a picture, right? But you set these expectations, and you set the expectations based on comparison with other families. And you see this beautiful family, your picture, all I see is my son's face. <laughs> Meh. <laughs> Come on, Samo. <laughs> He's got 
the face that I feel when we have to take family pictures, right? <laughs> you know how long we were trying to stand there while they're trying to prop up the phone on the, you know. If you want to understand how coveting is at work in your life, pay attention to your dissatisfaction with your life. Coveting isn't just about wanting what somebody else has. It's about wanting someone else has with the intent of figuring out how you can take it. But coveting is also something else. Uh, when we think about all the laws in the Old Testament, 613, coveting is the only one in the Old Testament that's about your thought life. Pay attention to your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Pay attention to your words. Your words become your actions. Pay attention to your actions. Your actions become your habits. Pay attention to your habits. Your habits become your character. You can say thank you all the time, but if you're not trying actively to eliminate complaining and comparison and coveting from your life, you're not, really not living in a, with gratitude. And this is the answer to coveting. Coveting kills us. It's one of these sins that puts us to death. And we know that it's going to put us to death by the law. By the law, sin gains its power to put us to death. You know what kills coveting? Gratitude. Gratitude. I love this quote. It says, not what we have, but what we enjoy constitute our abundance. Maybe this is true for you. It is for me. A lot of the people that I know that have a lot are not really living that abundant in their life. And a lot of the people that I know that don't have much, they're abundant. I have a friend uh, who's had what he calls the hardest year of his life. And I believe him. I'm knowing his story. He's had the hardest year of his life. He's gone through a lot of grief and loss and pain. And then with all the emotional things he's going through, the depression that he's going through, he's also struggled financially in the last year. It feels like insult added to injury. But through that process, through the things he's gone through, through processing the grief, things that he should have grieved years ago, decades, he's had this undealt with grief. And now he's processing it. And it's painful. But God is working on him. And he's come to this place of serenity, of peace, and of joy. And he said this amazing thing to me. He said, you know, thinking about the last year, if I had to pick, I'd pick this. If I had to look back and think about my life, and think about the things that I've been through, I wouldn't wish it away. And you know why? I'm closer to Jesus than I've ever been. I'm closer to God than I've ever been. Because I needed to depend on God. In the midst of my hardship and the struggle that I've gone through. I've been fine. I've been good. I've been fine for a long time. I realized that I've been complacent in being fine. My complacency, relying on myself, was fine when it was easy. But now that it's gotten hard, God is doing something more. If I had to pick, I'd pick this. And it made me think of this hymn, this old song that you might remember if you grew up in a church singing this. And maybe you've heard it even if you haven't. It's called It Is Well With My Soul. 
right? And it goes like this. It goes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And you think, well, that's fine for you to say. You don't have cancer. I have cancer. That's fine for you to say. You're not going through a divorce. I am. That's fine for you to say. I was never able to get married. I'm not able to have kids. You say it as well with your soul. If you had to deal with what I'm dealing with, you wouldn't say that. I love you, and I'm sorry you're struggling with what you're struggling with. And I want you to hear this. God is for you. I want to meet you in your pain. It's a really important part of what we do here. I want you to see that God has something beyond the death that's in front of you. God has something beyond the emptiness that you're feeling. God has something beyond. And if you're up or if you're down, I want you to think about this question. If all I had was God, would it be enough? If all I had was God, would I, would I be satisfied? If I had Jesus and nothing else, would that be everything that I need? It's a really important question. It's maybe one of the most important questions, maybe the most important question. The hymn continues. Though Satan should buffet. I almost said buffet. Okay. Though Satan should buffet. Have you ever been to the Satan buffet? Yeah. It's some spicy. It's a little spicy for me. Though Satan should buffet. Though his trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. Let this assurance control your life. Control your attitude. That Christ, yes, he has, regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Can you say that today? See, this hymn is written by this man named Horatio Spafford in the 1800s. Now, Horatio Spafford was a lawyer, and he... Uh, did really well for himself in Chicago, and he's invested heavily in real estate. So he was a really rich person, Horatio Spafford. And uh, he was doing really well until, if you know history, the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, when a significant portion of Chicago burned and tons of people died. And literally, Horatio Spafford's fortune went up in smoke. Not only that, but his only son died. So this man is grieving. And he went from being way up. And it would be easy to say it as well as my soul then. And now it's him and his wife, Anna, and his four daughters. And Spafford and his family are Christians. And Spafford and Anna decide they're going to go to England to support... Uh, their friend and the evangelist, D.L. Moody, who is in the midst of a revival at that time. And so they make a plan for a trip to England. And uh, 
Unfortunately, at that point, there was another economic downturn, and even more of the money that Spafford made, uh, he lost. So to deal with the, the, the business concerns that he was facing, Spafford said, all right, you and the kids go to England on the next ship, and then I will come as soon as I wrap things up here. Now, this is where this story is hard enough. takes a tragic turn. On November 22nd, 1873, the ship that Spafford's family was in collided with another ship. In the middle of the night, Thursday night, November 22nd, the ship sank, broke in two. In about 12 minutes, it was on the bottom of the ocean. And Spafford heard about it when his wife, who was rescued, sent a telegram from England. It was two words. Saved alone. His four daughters had died in that shipwreck. The oldest was 11 and the youngest was two. I can't imagine grieving the death of four kids apart from my wife. An ocean away from my wife. As quickly as he could, Spafford got on the next ship. I can't imagine getting on a ship after your family died in a shipwreck. But one night, the captain calls Spafford up to the deck and says, I can't say for sure, but I think this is the spot where your family's ship went down. Spafford and his wife said, I don't understand. I don't understand this at all. But I need to trust in the will of God right now. And he wrote a letter to his sister. He said, the ship that my kids were on is three miles down. But my kids are not in the ocean. They're in the arms of Jesus right now. It is well with my soul. And that phrase stuck with Spafford. And a little while later, he wrote this hymn in honor of his daughters. It is well with my soul. It's not some trite, you know, like, it's okay. It's, it's not all bad. At least, at least you had kids. It's not a way to dismiss your pain. It is well with my soul is written from the depth of pain about this man's deep, deep grief. But the scripture tells us, I don't want you to know, I don't want you to think that we grieve as those who have no hope, Paul says. I want you to know that we grieve in a hopeful way. We grieve, we absolutely grieve, but we grieve in a hopeful way because there is a hope that goes deeper than death, that goes deeper than our pain, that goes deeper than anything that we face. This hope is in Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. This is a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love it. He says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. When Spafford writes about sea billows rolling 
and Satan coming against him. It's not hypothetical. He's writing about his own pain. And like Spurgeon, he learned to kiss the waves that have cast him against the rock, Jesus Christ. Like my friend, I think Spafford would say, if I had to pick, I'd pick this. Not because I want my kids to die, but because I have Jesus. And Jesus, to me, is everything. And so when we look at the law and when we see the ways that it puts us to death, when we see our emptiness, when we feel like God is against us, when we feel like we will never measure up to the standard that we set for ourselves, and even more so for the standard that God has set for us, I want you to see that God is with you in the midst of your pain. I want you to see what Jesus does. There's a great story in Mark 4 where there, Jesus is preaching, and he's there with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, and he says, let's go across the lake to the other side. And so they get on a boat, and Jesus is tired. He's been preaching a long time. So he takes a nap. This is one of the things I love about Jesus, because I love naps. Jesus also loves naps. He's taking a nap in the midst of a storm. That's how much Jesus loves naps. This storm isn't going to interrupt my nap. The disciples are expert fishermen. They know how to manage a boat. And they're afraid. But Jesus isn't. Why do you think that is? It was well with his soul. Jesus knew that he was okay because he was in God's hands. There's no storm that could take that away from him. The disciples are different. They shake Jesus, they wake him up, and they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to drown. Now think about that for a second. Have you thought about God in that way? Have you said to yourself or said to God in a prayer, God, don't you care about the things that I'm suffering? If you cared, wouldn't you change this? Wouldn't you do something about the pain that I'm facing right now? God, where are you right now? Remember this. Jesus didn't have to be in that boat. He chose to be in that boat, in that storm. Just like Jesus chooses to be in your boat, in your storm. Remember this, that God is for you. And that God is with you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain. That God is near to the broken heart. That God is with you in everything you're up against right now. And I want you to see that God is doing something. And you don't understand what God is doing, just like I don't understand. I'm not pretending to understand why you're suffering the way that you're suffering. I'm not going to dismiss your pain. Your pain is real, and your pain matters. But your pain also matters to God. And I want you to see what God is doing. That God leverages all things. God doesn't cause all things. God didn't make Horatio Spafford's kids die. And God didn't cause your suffering either. But God leverages it. In life and in the Bible, what feels like persecution, what feels like pressure, what feels like pain, what feels like loss, and what is death, is God preparing us. What is God preparing us for? God is preparing us for his amazing grace. If you're facing something you don't want to face, remember what Jesus prayed on the darkest night of his life. In Gethsemane, when he's about to be persecuted, when he's about to be killed, Jesus said, 
Father, if you're willing, please let this cup of suffering pass away from me. I do not want this. But God, not my will, but yours be done. Now, the word used for will in this verse is synonymous with the word that Paul uses for covet. God, not my desire, but your desire. God, not my wants, not my cravings, but God, let what you want for me happen because I trust you with my life, even though I don't want this. This is Jesus speaking, even though I don't understand. So let's take it back to Romans. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. Let this blessed assurance control, not my sin. Don't let the sin in my life, don't let the things that have happened to me, the sin of other people or the sin that I have committed, don't let those things run my life anymore. Don't let the emptiness be the thing. Don't let me be a pile of sand on the floor. Don't let me be everything in the world that I, says that I am. But, but God, give me your son as a sacrifice for my sin and make it well with my soul knowing that no matter what this world gives me no matter what this world throws at me that you will always be with me through those things and you are making all things new that you are making all things new and you're wiping every tear from our eyes and there'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the old order of things is passing away so when you think about the emptiness that you're feeling Know that God isn't going to leave you that way. Remember what the law looked like in your life, the beauty that it promised to give you, but it couldn't deliver. And see that God is giving you something else in its place. See that God loves you, and he's with you in the midst of your suffering. See that God's grace is enough. See that as God shows up for you, the pain and the suffering that define your life don't get to define your life anymore. You see the way that it resembles the promise of the law. It's colorful, it's ordered, even in the midst of the chaos. There's a beauty to it. We can confuse the law with the gospel, but the gospel is different. The law says you shall, and we hear you better. The gospel says you shall, and it says you will. The law says you shall, and we hear all the ways that we'll never measure up. The gospel says you are. And God speaks to us about his grace. God tells us who we are in his kingdom. You are children of God. You hear the way that God changes it. God fulfills the promise that the law made that the law could never give you because of the weakness of our flesh, because of the weakness of our sin. We will never measure up to the standing that God has set for us. Who's going to save us from this wretch that we are? Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, Galatians says. Who's going to save this wretch that I am, Paul says. 
Praise God, it's Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Know that you are God's. Know that you are enough. Know that God loves you. Know that God saves you. Know that God takes the sin and the brokenness and the death that the law brings through our sin. And he replaces it with something better. He replaces it with his gospel. Praise God. So we can say with Spafford, we can say with Paul, we can say with Jesus Christ, it is well with my soul. And that's how we're going to end this service. We're going to sing, not the old hymn with Satan's buffet, because there's lots of confusing words in that, right? We're going to sing an updated version. Please join us as we worship.